tonight in our study of knowing God, we are in chapter 14, and he's been walking us through some of the main attributes of our God. Last week, we looked at the love of God, and tonight we look at his justice. And so the chapter is entitled God the Judge. And one of the things he talks about toward the beginning of the chapter is just how unpopular the idea of the justice of God is. That uh, if you were to talk to the average person, uh, even you know, in the world, an unbeliever, the, the idea that God would judge, that God would condemn, that God would send anyone to an eternal hell is so far out of their minds. It's so foreign, they can't even comprehend it. That is somewhat understandable given the fact that they're unbelievers. But even within the church, within those that claim to know and love the scriptures, there are a lot of people that have a hard time with this doctrine. And so the idea of the justice of God, that God would judge people, is uh, it's unpopular. There's a lot of people that, that either flat out don't believe it at all, or they try to tone it way down and change it to where it's, in their minds, not so harsh. But again, are we listening to what God has said in that, or are we shaping a God after our own making when we do that? And so he just talks about that. But one of the things that we need to realize is that God as judge is all throughout the Bible. So when people think about the justice of God, they're doing it from, I think, for a lot of people, a, an ignorance or a lack of knowledge of God's word and just how much that doctrine is from Genesis to Revelation. And it's all over. And it, it's because it's at the heart of who God is. He's a just and a righteous God. And it's an important theme throughout the entire Bible. And so we see it talked about in different ways. One of the ways that we see it talked about is an actual experience, the, the reality of it, where God in history, in time, in events, brings justice into the world. We see it from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, don't we? Where Adam and Eve sin and God brings justice. He, he brings a curse. And he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden and prevents them from living in paradise and eating of the tree of life. And so there's consequences for their rebellion. Uh, we see uh, Cain murder Abel in Genesis 4, and God sends him out as a wanderer across the face of the earth. Uh, Genesis 6 through 9, we see the flood. That's probably one of the preeminent uh, pictures of judgment in the entire Bible that God would destroy all of humanity that had become so wicked, all except for Noah and his family. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, the, the future day of the Lord, the final judgment is oftentimes spoken of in comparison with, or in language reminiscent of Noah's flood. Uh, for example, Jesus says, as in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. So that, that is one of the premier uh, examples of God's judgment in the whole Bible. And, and really, you can keep on going through the, the whole Bible, and you can see examples 
of God's judgment being worked out in people's lives in history. But you also see it in its teaching. So you see it in actual practice, God judging people, but you also see the importance of it in uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, just all throughout Scripture where it says God is a just God. God is righteous. God will judge those who commit iniquity. And so in both in practice as well as in precept, we see God's justice emphasized. And it's not a contrast. It's not a distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people think that. They think they have this picture in their minds of a harsh judging God in the Old Testament and a kind, merciful God in the New Testament who, you know, there's no judgment in the New Testament. They haven't read the New Testament, if you come away with that, uh, that idea, because it is all the way throughout. It's in the Gospels. Jesus talks about people going to hell, to uh, Hades, Gehenna, in the Gospels, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus says. Uh, Peter and Paul, the apostles, they talk about judgment in their letters. Uh, Revelation is, is uh, much of it is about God's judgment on an unbelieving world and on an unbelieving world that persecutes God's church. So judgment is all throughout the New Testament too. So we have the same God, don't we? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of justice in the Old Testament is the same God of justice in the New Testament. Uh, the God who judged the world in Noah is the God who's going to judge the world again at the end of time through Christ. So he's the same God. And in fact, uh, J.I. Packer says in the chapter that really God's action as judge intensifies in the New Testament. So God is not any less of a just God in the New Testament, perhaps even more so it's emphasized because the, the final day of the Lord and the final day of judgment becomes even more crystal clear in New Testament revelation, doesn't it? I mean, in the Old Testament, they had the idea of God's justice, but for them, the idea of God's justice was often within history of, you know, God uh, sending an army that would inflict, afflict his people or in the flood. Those, those are actions within history uh, or Achan, when he sinned, his family was put to death. But in the New Testament, we see not only things like that within history, but the culmination of it all in the final day of the Lord, the final judgment seat of Christ. That becomes really clearly revealed in the New Testament. And so then he just starts to walk us through this theme of God as our judge. And he walks us through four main characteristics of God as judge. And the first of those is the judge is a person with authority. The judge is a person with authority. It is uh, someone who can make a determination regarding someone's guilt or innocence. In the case of God, his authority is inherent, isn't it? So when we think of a judge today in our culture, we might think of someone who was appointed or someone who was elected by the people. But in the case of God, he's judge because he's God, because he's the creator. He made it. He owns it. 
it is his right to do with it as he wills. And so uh, as creator, he has the right to make laws. And he has the right to dispense reward or judgment based on response to those words of God. So he is both the lawgiver and the judge. It's interesting, isn't it, that when it comes to God, uh, he is the one who makes the law, speaks the law, but he's also the one who upholds it and uh, renders judgment regarding it. In our system of government, those roles are split, aren't they? We have legislature who makes laws. We have a, a justice system that punishes lawbreakers, but God's the creator. He's the one who gives the law and the one who holds people accountable to that law. So it's someone with authority. Uh, the judge is a person identified with what is good and right. Ideally, that should be the case for every human judge, that they, they make decisions and rulings based on unbiased, uninfluenced law, what is right, what is wrong. But we're not perfect, are we? You know, no human is perfect. And so there are always going to be elements of imperfection and sometimes bias in decisions that judges make, but not so with God. He alone is the purely righteous judge who loves justice and truth, and he hates iniquity and deceit. So, so God is not indifferent. He is for truth and justice and love. He is against hatred and deceit. And uh, really, God is the model judge that all human judges should seek to follow, even though we certainly don't do it perfectly. But a judge is someone who is identified with what is good and what is right. The judge is a person of wisdom to discern truth. So in the case of God, he's all-knowing. He's all-wise. If you stand before a human judge, you can probably fool that human judge and you can manipulate evidence. You can manipulate testimony. Uh, You can try to pull one over on on the judge and he doesn't see, he doesn't know because he's not all-knowing. Not so with God. You can't do that with God because he knows all, he sees all. He is the perfect judge. Nothing can escape him. He knows us. He judges us as we really are. Here's the thing. God would even judge us more accurately than we could even judge ourselves. Because God sees down to the very depths of our soul, what our motivations are, what our fears are, what our, you know, anything that might be influencing our thoughts or our actions, God sees it all. Even to the point where we may not be able to understand ourselves fully and all of our uh, motives or emotions. God can judge us even better than we can judge ourselves, which is why David, I think, prays in Psalm 19, Lord, cleanse me from secret faults. I think he means by that, Lord, even the things that I don't even know about, things that are secret to my own heart. And so God knows it all. He, he knows us perfectly. And so therefore his judgment is according to truth. And he says both factual truth, that is what actually happened, what we actually did, what we actually thought or said, 
but also the truth of what's right and wrong, moral truth. God judges us in accordance with both of those kinds of truth. And fourthly, he says, the judge is a person of power to execute sentence. In our justice system, uh, depending on the level of crime and what kind of a court you're in, uh, the judge may not necessarily have the authority to render a sentence. Um, so like in a, uh, a capital crime or, or a murder or something like that, oftentimes it's within the jury, uh, whether or not someone receives the death penalty or something like that. Um, so the judge doesn't actually hand down the sentence all the time, depending on the level. But with God, he's the one who dispenses the justice too. He executes the sentence. God is his own executioner, he says. As he legislates and sentences, so he punishes. All of the aspects of justice coalesce, he says, in God. So he is the lawmaker, the lawgiver. He is the, the seer, determiner of what is right and wrong. He is the one who accurately assesses the guilt or innocence of people. And he renders judgment, sentence on those who are guilty. And all of those come together in the justice of God. And one of the key aspects of justice, biblically understood, is retribution. And I think I might have mentioned this in a previous time that we had together, but our, our system of justice doesn't operate by retribution. Retribution is there is a crime, there is a actual punishment, physical, financial, whatever, that fits that crime. We don't do that anymore. Our justice system is more restorative. And so we put people in prison, hoping to restore them, to change them, to reintroduce them back into society. We, we've lost the concept of retributive justice in our society. But the Bible, that is what justice is in God's worldview, is retributive justice, which means there is a punishment that fits the crime. He says the heart of the justice which expresses God's nature is retribution, the rendering to persons what they have deserved. For this is the essence of the judge's task, to reward good with good and evil with evil. It's natural to God. So retribution is giving to each person what they deserve. The retributive principle is this, all will receive according to their works. And that's a principle that even Paul brings out in Romans, a book that we often associate with uh, great salvation by grace through faith. In Romans, Paul says, God judges each one according to his actual deeds. It is a, a fair, accurate justice system in which people receive in accordance with their works. And retribution is the natural expression of God's divine character. The Old Testament principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, that comes out of the character of God. 
out of what is just and fair and equitable. And really, we know in our hearts that this is right. This is how it ought to be. We have, I believe, as human beings, an instinctive concept of justice. That that when something is done that is wrong, there needs to be a response that matches that wrong. And now we're fallen human beings. And so oftentimes our retribution is tainted by anger, hatred, overcompensating, but you can feel the knee-jerk reaction to it when someone, you see someone hit someone. Well, what's the natural response? That person deserves a hit back. It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's like a knee-jerk reaction, instinctive response that there has to be something that, that matches it. And so when, when justice is not carried out, I think it, it it's fundamentally unnatural. It, it jars us. Retribution is the inescapable moral law of creation. God will see each person sooner or later receives what he deserves. If not here, then hereafter. And this is all based on the character of God. The character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. Isn't that a comforting thought? One of the things that's hard for us to to see and to deal with sometimes is when we see injustices take place that are not judged. And that, that bothers us. And we wonder, when is the justice of God going to be made known, shown, revealed? Some of the biblical writers struggled with this. Habakkuk struggled with it. Habakkuk couldn't figure out how, how God's justice was working and, and how he could use Babylon, a wicked nation, to judge his people that he had chosen and called. So Habakkuk was wrestling with this and, and God essentially has to show Habakkuk it's within my sovereign purposes. It's within my timing. The just have to live by faith. They have to trust God for when he is going to bring justice. But uh, eventually it's all going to be made right. God is going to judge rightly everyone in accordance with what they've done. God is the judge, and so justice will be done. Which brings us to the question, if, if the, the idea of justice is within our nature, why is there such a reaction to it? Why, why so many objections against the justice of God? And here I think we see our, our fundamental, um, where our, our logic breaks down. Because no one would want to live in a society where no wrongs were ever punished. That would be an an unlivable society, wouldn't it? If you had a society where anybody could do whatever they wanted and there was no punishment for any wrong, that would be an unlivable society. It, It would descend into chaos and it would destroy itself. So we know that that is an unlivable, an unworkable society. We know that that, it, that can't happen. It can't be that way. There has to be justice. Uh, 
So why then the problem with God? I think there's a fundamental breakdown in our logic here because we wouldn't want a society like that. Well, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Let's say you had a king. It's not a democracy. It's a king, a monarchy, absolute monarchy. He rules over his realm. He appoints people. He he can appoint judges. He can put people in prison. He's the absolute authority over that country. And his whole country was run amok with crime and murder and theft. What would people assume about that king? Either he doesn't know or he doesn't care. Well, that's what we would have to assume about God if God didn't judge sin. Either he doesn't know, which that's against what Scripture tells us about God, because he's all-knowing, or he doesn't care. And that also, that's also against what the Bible tells us about God, because he does care about what is right and what is just. And so we wouldn't want that in our society, but yet that's how they want the universe to be, no justice under God's rule. And it, it doesn't go together. It doesn't make sense, does it? So he says, moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. But not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. So far from being a a negative, objectionable attribute of God, it is really at the core of his being that makes him right and honorable and true, that he would uphold justice in his universe. This thought, this idea, the reality of divine justice, he says that needs to change the way that we live our lives because we can live our lives and we can do as Jesus calls us to do. Uh, We can turn the other cheek when someone slaps it. Uh, We can, as Paul says in Romans, we can return good for evil and heap coals of fire on their head. We can, we can love our enemies, as Jesus says. We can do these things in the light of the fact that God is the judge and will one day bring it all into account and will make it right. That impacts the way that we live our lives. And it also impacts the way that we live our lives in the sense that our own selves, we, we work and we seek to follow God's will under the idea that God is our judge and we want to do what is right and pleasing to him. And so it impacts our view of life and, and the very meaning of life, that, that there is a fundamental right and wrong, that that is the, the guide for our lives and that we don't live in a world of chance. We don't live in a world of shifting sand but we live in a world of firm truths that God has established and it provides meaning and structure to our life. And this truth also reminds us of God's victory in the end, that, that because God is the creator and because he is bringing it all back to justice and righteousness, that God is the final victor 
And if we are with him and we are with Christ, then that gives us hope, doesn't it? And so this truth reorients our lives. He says judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. How is this all going to come to pass? It is through Jesus. Jesus is the Father's agent. In the New Testament, Jesus is the main authority on final judgment. That's an interesting thought. I bet if you were to walk up to the average person who knows of Jesus, has read some of the Bible, maybe respects some of the teachings of Jesus, and made this statement to them, they would be shocked that Jesus said more about judgment than anybody else in the New Testament. They probably wouldn't believe you. But you read through the Gospels and you read the words of Jesus, and he does. He says more about final judgment than any of the other New Testament writers. So we have passages like Matthew 25, where we see the Son of Man sitting on his throne in heavenly glory. And that's the passage where uh, all peoples are brought before Jesus at the last day. And he has them separated sheep and goats, right and left. And he is the one who knows perfectly who belongs where, because he's the all-knowing judge. And he gives to each one as they deserve. We also see in John 5, where the father has entrusted judgment to the son. So Jesus is the divinely appointed judge of God. That at the end of time, the one sitting on the bench, if you will, the judge of all the earth will be Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He is the one who will render judgment to every person. God's own appointment has made Jesus Christ inescapable. He stands at the end of life's road for everyone without exception. Prepare to meet the risen Jesus is God's message to the world today. And isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he says that God now has exalted Christ, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, what? Should bow to the glory of God the Father. So I, I like the way that he said that. Jesus is at the end of life's road for every single human being. Everyone will stand before him. Acts 17.31, the one that he mentioned in that statement, says, For he, that is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying to the people, the Greek philosophers in Athens, there's a judgment coming, and God, the creator of the universe, has already appointed the judge, and he's given proof of this appointment by the fact that he is risen from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is closely tied by Paul to the final day of judgment. When everyone will raise from the graves and stand before Christ. And then in the last few uh, paragraphs of the chapter, he talks about the index of the heart. And 
And in this section of the chapter, he's talking about how God's judgment, God as just, how that relates to Christians. And he wants us to think about certain passages in Scripture that state very clearly that uh, it is the one who does the will of God who will be accepted in the end. So, for example, we have uh, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven is what that passage says. Uh, Matthew 25, we have Jesus there, the sheep and the goats. And what distinguishes them? Uh, The ones who care for others versus the ones who don't care for others. Uh, You have in Revelation, uh, the one who endures and is victorious he will inherit all this, but thieves and murderers and liars, and they're on the outside looking in. Uh, Paul, talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, says that everyone, writing to Christians, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So what does it mean then for judgment according to works, rendering to each person according to what they have done? What does that mean then for Christians, for the gospel? Are we saved on the merits of our own works after all? If each person, including believers, are going to stand before Christ at the final day of judgment and be, be rendered judgment by the all-knowing Jesus in accordance with what we have done, does that mean that we're saved by works? No, we're not. They are what J.I. Packer calls the index of the heart. And he explains it this way. He says, the relevance of our doings is not that they ever merit an award from the court. They fall too far short of perfection to do that. But that they provide an index of what is in the heart, what in other words is the real nature of each agent. In other words, we are not saved by the works that we do. They don't merit or earn us eternal life. But the works are, in essence, like evidence presented before the court that demonstrate that we have been born again by the grace of God, which is by faith, not by works. So we are justified by grace through faith, and we are accepted on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. And every single one that Christ justifies, he also sanctifies, doesn't he? As 1 John writes, the one who has been born of God does not continue to go on sinning. So there is fruit, there is obedience that flows from a truly regenerate heart. Therefore, good works become the index of the heart. So we're not saved by works. The works are uh, evidentiary uh, testimony, if you will, that Christ, the Holy Spirit, have done a work in our hearts. So works then serve as a confirmation, if you will, of the new birth, which is a work of grace. So we are saved by grace through faith and the works follow from that. So when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this is one way in which works will come into account in that judgment is they'll serve as an index of the heart, if you will evidence that we have been born again by the grace of God. 
But he also says that works may serve to distinguish levels of reward. And this is not something that's talked a lot about in Scripture. And there's, there's not a great deal that we can point to to say this is how it's going to work out. And he even says in the chapter there's some mystery to this that we don't fully know or understand. But he says the gift of justification does not at all shield believers from being assessed as Christians and from forfeiting good which others will enjoy if it turns out that as Christians they have been slack, mischievous, and destructive. And he references 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that is the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. That's the idea of justified, saved for eternity, but perhaps levels of joy, reward, however you want to describe it, based on whether we've on that foundation, we've built gold, silver, precious stones, laying up treasure in heaven, or whether we've built on that foundation wood, hay, stubble, that's not going to stand the intensive eye of the judging Lord at the end. And so that's what he points us to in that idea of judgment according to works. One, works will serve as an index of our heart that we're born again, but also perhaps in some way that we don't fully know, uh, different experiences of joy, of levels of reward, perhaps, in the new heavens and new earth. So judgment according to works, but also final judgment according to knowledge. The final judgment will be according to knowledge in that people will be judged based on the level of light or knowledge that was accessible to them with this principle behind it. Where a man has been given much, much will be expected of him. And we see Jesus referencing this concept when he says um, of uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, because if the works that had been done in uh, you were also done in Sodom and Gomorrah, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for them than for you. On what basis would Jesus say that? Well, Chorazin and Bethsaida were towns in Galilee they had Jesus' ministry. They had the preaching of Jesus. They had the miracles of Jesus. They had the, the disciples of Jesus going out two by two and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Sodom and Gomorrah have? They had really no witness. Lot lived there, but Lot wasn't much of a witness at the time. And yet God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus says, if a prophet had gone to them, and preached to them and done the works in them that I've done in you, they would have repented. And so it's going to be more tolerable for them on the day of judgment than for you, which implies that levels of judgment will be in accord with levels of light or levels of knowledge received. So Sodom and Gomorrah, 
received less revelation, less evidence of God's word, less evidence of God's works than Bethsaida and Chorazin. So there may be a difference then in the way that they're treated on the final day of judgment. But there's no need to flee. We don't need to flee the justice of God. He says the natural reaction to the holy justice of God is to flee. And we see that in Adam and Eve, don't we? They sinned. They disobeyed God's command. God came walking in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They ran. They went to hide. That's the natural reaction to a holy, righteous, just God when we are guilty. But he says we don't need to flee. Instead, we can call on Christ who can redeem us, who can save us. And the one who will be the coming judge can be our present Savior who will shield us from the judgment of God. As judge, he is the law. But as Savior, he is the gospel. Run from him now and you will meet him as judge then and without hope. Seek him now and you will find him. And I've said this before in sermons, but Jesus will either be your savior or he will be your judge. If he is not your savior now, then he will be your judge then. But instead of fleeing, running from the justice of God, run to saving grace, run to Christ. Because Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't need fear the judgment of God if we are in Christ because he is our savior who rescues us, as Paul says, from the wrath to come. 